Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to everybody in the room here, everyone joining us online. If you've got a Bible near you, pull out the Bible, pull it out on your phones, scan the uh, QR code in the chair in front of you to get the message notes. Your online folks can direct you on how to get those. Um, we're in the storyline of Exodus in Exodus chapter 5 today. And uh, I, it reminded me of a time when I first heard the word sinner, and it was applied to me. I was in high school. I had a new friend named Andy. We started hanging out together and doing some sports stuff together. He invited me over to his apartment to watch the Iowa-Ohio State football game. And in the state of Iowa, when Iowa and Ohio State were playing back in the 80s, it was like, you know, Super Bowl Sunday for the state of Iowa. And so everybody was watching the game. So uh, we were eating some food and watching the game. And at halftime, he turned the TV off and he opened up this book here. And he said, Eric, you know, it's I love you enough to have this conversation with you, and I want to talk about what God has to say, what the Bible has to say about sin. And there's a word called sinner, and it's applied to you and to me and to every human. That wasn't quite what I thought the football <laughs> game was going to be about. But where we're at in the storyline of Exodus today is we're going to get a window into how costly it is to leave the land of sin. Do you remember where we left Moses off at last week in Exodus 3? We called it living on the redemptive edge, that Moses found the point of darkness and he pushed it back with the light of Christ's hope and grace and love. Like, that's the redemptive edge. It's where people like Joel and My Gross Aid, they live on the redemptive edge at that place where light and darkness come together, and, and the people had been crying out from a place of darkness. We called it our own personal Egypts. And remember how the people, after several hundred years of enslavement, said, we're tired of being here. We want out. We want free. And God said, I hear your cries. I see your misery. I'm concerned about your suffering. And they were like, amen, amen, amen. And so I'm coming down to rescue. Yes, amen, and hallelujah. And God says, Moses, I pick you. This is how I'm going to get it done. I'm going to get you from Egypt to the promised land through an 80-year-old man named Mo Moses. I pick you. I'm going to pick you to live on the redemptive edge. You're going to get out on that space between Pharaoh and Yahweh, and you're going to meet me there. And what we're going to see today in the part of the story is it's, it's painful, it's difficult, it's costly to leave Egypt. And if you don't hear anything else out of the message today, I want you to hear this. The only way from Egypt to the promised land is on the back of the Passover lamb. That's how you get out of Egypt. The Passover lamb. So Moses decides he needs a partner. He's 80. And you think, well, he's going to draft some young, you know, some young guy to join him, right? He gets an 83-year-old brother, Aaron. So here's God's dynamic leadership duo. 80-year-old Moses, 83-year-old Aaron. Woohoo! This is God's picture of retirement. If you're not dead, you're not done. That's God's picture of retirement right there. So no coasting, those of you on the second half of life, put on the gas, right? You're going to stay on the redemptive edge all the way to the end. So you've got Moses is 80, Aaron's 83, God's given them a clear plan. The plan is that they're supposed to go to Pharaoh 
and they're supposed to explain to Pharaoh, who's the king of Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world, that he's supposed to let his 600,000 men approximately, approximately a million to a million and a half total people, let them go out of his country and worship Yahweh, head to the promised land. And you can imagine Moses might have been, do you do this like when you have like a big conversation, meeting, project, presentation? You, do you kind of, anybody else have like the imaginary conversations before the meeting? Do you, anybody else do this or am I the only one who does this? Like I'm picturing, you know, having a meeting, of course none of you, but just imagine that if someone's coming to have a conversation with me about something, I might go, well, let's see, I think they're going to say this and then I probably need to think about how I'm going to respond here and they're going to, you do, do that? Well, picture Moses and Aaron. So here, here's the setup. God tells Moses, okay, here's how you're going to do this. You're going to go to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and you're going to say, I am has sent me to you. I am, capital I am. I am has sent me to you. So can you picture Moses saying to Aaron, so, so Aaron, here's how this is going to go. So I'm going to Pharaoh, and I'm going to say, I am has sent me to you. And he's going to say, uh, okay, I, I don't know who, who that is. And Moses is like, okay, I'm going to say, well, I am has said that you're to let all of these Israelites go. Like, the I am I'm referring to, all your gods and goddesses in this Egyptian land, they all bow in the shadow of this I am. So, in the name of the great I am, you let all these people go. And he's picturing, okay, what's Pharaoh going to say to that? And you just think, Moses is like, well, do you think Pharaoh's just going to say, well, now that you ask so politely, okay, there you go. There's the exit door. Enjoy your journey to the promised land. You know, it's right. like, this is crazy. He's not, he, he's going to, if he doesn't have me killed on the spot, he's going to, you know, create even more misery in our lives. So this is where we pick up, this is where we're at. How they're going to get from their land of Egypt to the promised land. And the only hope, church, is the back of the Passover lamb. So here's where we're at, Exodus 5, verse 1. Here's Pharaoh's response, the actual. So he went from imaginary conversation to what actually happened. After Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. A festival, an act of worship to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. And inside Moses said, exactly. Everybody been there? Were you like, this played out exactly as disastrous as I thought it was going to go. Like, he said, I don't know who I am is. I don't care who I am is. I am the I am. Here's what Pharaoh thinks. Pharaoh thinks he's the capital I, capital A, capital M. And you know, generally speaking, nothing good is going to happen in life if you think you're the capital I, capital A, capital M. And so Moses is like, yeah, he thinks he's the I am, so he's not interested in bowing to the great I am. And so you know, God steps in. And don't, don't worry about Moses. I got this, God says. Look at, go to chapter 6, verse 1. The Lord says to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. And probably Moses thinking, clearly it's not because of the wisdom and strength and leadership that Aaron and I have. We're close to dead, and we're standing up here trying to do this. God says, I'll step in. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his 
country. And jump down to verse 6. Therefore, say to the Israelites. So Moses, remember, he's charged with leading a million plus people. Can you picture how those conversations had to go? Can you imagine what kind of inbox he had going on when he laid out the plan to a million plus people? And they looked at him and thought, yeah, that's, yeah, that's not going to go well. And then, like, can you picture that? I mean, I, Moses had to have so many sleepless nights where he thought, I was just trying to herd some sheep out in the desert. This bush lights on fire, and it says, I pick you, and now I choose to live on the redemptive edge. And this is really hard, Lord, and it doesn't seem the people are that interested in getting on board with the plan. Matter of fact, they're not that on board with that it's even going to happen. So God keeps stepping and says, okay, Moses, you keep doing what I ask you to do. I'll step in and do what only I can do. Notice it's a both-and thing. God says, I pick you, but God says, that's where you, on the redemptive edge is where you meet God. You find that point of darkness and push it back with the light of God's hope and grace and truth. Watch now what happens. Verse 6, so say to all these Israelites, and he needs to have an encouragement party. He needs to build into the, some faith into the troops. I am the Lord. Underline in this section, if you've got your Bibles, all the I wills. And I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Verse 8, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. You see that? So God, do you see the number of I wills there? I will bring, I will free, I will redeem, I will take, I will bring, I will give. Unless Moses, Aaron, or the Israelites were getting confused about whose story this really was they were participating in. This is not the grand epic eternal story of Moses. This is the grand, epic, eternal story of God of which Moses and Aaron, the Israelites, and all of us have a role and a place to play. On the redemptive edge, I pick you. In Jesus' name, if you said yes to Jesus, you said yes to the redemptive edge right there. It's a package deal. You don't say yes to Jesus and then just get to say, no, I'm good staying in the background. That's not how it works. You say yes to Jesus and you join him on the redemptive edge right here. And God says, here's what I'll do. I'll show up and I'll make a way when their only explanation is going to be this, only God. The way God's going to get the Israelites out of Egypt, the only explanation, are you following this, is going to be, that had to be the Lord. Application to our lives, right? Our own personal Egypts, our own journeys, the stuff we're working through, the things that you began to name perhaps last week put some names to it, the things that are entangling, that are holding us back, that are keeping us in bondage, those things right there, the way it break free comes, the way freedom comes, the way out on the back of this Passover lamb, it's, it's gonna, the explanation is going to be, it had, had to be the work of the Lord. And that's what God says he's going to do. And no doubt for Moses, it had to be super encouraging to him. Because I'm sure Moses, we don't have it in the text here, but I'm sure there are many weeks, many nights where he probably said to the Lord, Lord, you just need to find somebody else to do this. I'm good. I'm done. I'm going to go find a retirement community and just hang out and coast. Like, I don't need this anymore. Can you just get someone else to handle all this? And then right here on the redemptive edge, said, Moses, just keep staying out there. Stay right there. And I'm going to show up and come through. So you see the plan? Pharaoh says, no, Moses, the people are staying. And God says through Moses, no, Pharaoh, the people are going. See the collision? Pharaoh says, no, Moses, the people are staying. God says, through Moses, no, Pharaoh, the people are going. 
and it's the collision right here. And this is where in the storyline of Exodus, we're introduced to 10 plagues. Okay, so this is where the plagues are inserted. The plagues are the way God gets Pharaoh to release his iron grip of his will and loosen it up. It's a surrender of Pharaoh's will to God's will. How does it happen? Ten plagues. It takes a ten-rounder. Well, that's such a commentary on my life. I know for so many times it's like, I mean, I wish I could learn it in round one or two or three. I feel like it takes me seven, eight, nine, ten rounds before, you know? to surrender my will, to loosen the grip, to yield control, to say, God, I know you, you got this. Well, this is where the, the play, and I, I put in your notes because I think it's really important for you to see the intentionality God used to apply to the plague. The plagues weren't some random acts. God's very intentional with what he did here. And I put them in your notes, and here they are up on the screen. Go ahead and put the list up on the screen. So here are all the plagues starting in chapter 7. And I want you to see how God selected the plague to purposefully undermine the pantheon of the Egyptian gods and goddesses. Do you see this? Just giving you time to glance through the list, and they're all in your notes. You have them later. Do you see how he… It's like G.K. Chesterton said, the problem with humanity isn't that we don't worship anything. It's that we worship everything. That's the problem. So the Egyptians, they were spiritual people. They were bowing down to all these gods and goddesses. And God's like, yeah, I'm going to make a statement through the plagues to let them know it's not about Hopi or Heket or Shu or Seth or Geb or Ra. It's not any of those gods and goddesses. I'm going to undermine that pantheon with a direct plague that contrasts. You see that, you know, like Ra, the sun god, God's like, well, I'm going to take care of Ra. I'm going to have a plague of darkness over that. See that? I'm going to trump that. Or you look at the plague of the frogs. It's like, well, there was a face of a frog on Heket, their goddess for childbirth. They bowed down to all the time. It was the face of the frog. I'm going to take care of that one, the plague of the frogs. You see this? Or the plague of the flies, like the deal with the sky. Or the plague of hail, the god of the wind and the storms. Do you see? There's an intentionality here because here's what the people had a tendency to do. The people had a tendency to make all this this battle to get out of Egypt. They had a tendency to make it a Pharaoh versus Moses deal. They tried to make it a people-to-people issue. And God uses the plague to say, hey, this isn't a Pharaoh versus Moses deal. This is a Pharaoh's gods and gods, gods and goddesses versus Moses' God, Yahweh. That's the battleground. Do you see it? It's a Yahweh versus all the Egyptian pantheon gods. That's where the battle is. And boy, I think in my life how often I... It's really, a, it's really a God issue, but I'm making it a people-to-people issue. Does anybody else do this? I'm, this happens a lot in marriage. Do you know a good, healthy sign in a marriage is when you have the maturity in your relationship? Now, I'm going to tread on some thin ice here, but go with me. When you have the maturity in your relationship to be able to say, in perhaps a difficult conversation, in a loving posture, of course, it's like, honey, I feel like right now the stuff you're bringing to me about this that I don't think this is a you and me issue. I think this either might be an us and Jesus issue or a you and Jesus issue. Now, take, listen, that's not a cop-out for, I'm just saying you've got to be able to discern sometimes the stuff we turn into a people-to-people issue is really a God issue. It's like Moses and Aaron no doubt had to have a lot of nights where they thought, oh my God gosh, how are we going to do this? It was a people-to-people issue, and the people were thrusting. Moses solved the problem. Moses fixed the scene. Moses and Aaron deal with this. Moses, calm our nerves. Moses, do this. And Moses had to fall on his face, and God says, Moses, this isn't a people-to-people issue. 
This is a Yahweh versus Pharaoh's gods and goddesses issue. So rest in that. And that's a good, healthy sign in our relational worlds, even in local church life. Sometimes, right, things are it's hard. We work together that we've got to remember. It's, it's God issue that, that eagle is Jesus' bride. It's bought with His blood, and He will carry us forward. Like this is, and we're all humans, and we all work together to serve His bride. We all have a role to play on this redemptive edge, but under His headship. It's such a great picture here that Moses has, and I think a great lesson for him and for the community. And Unfortunately for Moses, he probably thought maybe round one, two, or three would be enough to the whole pharaoh, right? I mean, picture that if he goes plague of the flood or blood, frogs, gnats, flies. You think eventually, and the routine would go, pharaoh would say, oh, okay, go. And then he'd have second thoughts. No, come back. Round one, round two. Go, no, come back. Anybody been there? Like, all right, Lord, I'm good, I'm done, I'm surrendered, I'm yield, I'm loosening the grip, and you... Maybe make it through a, a Sunday service, or maybe you make it to Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening, and then Monday morning hits, and boom. I'm taking it all back, right? And then God introduces the next layer. It's a 10-rounder to get him to loosen, loosen Pharaoh's grip. And that's the role of the plague. So I want you to think of the plagues as this place that God takes us to to get us to yield, that yielding of my will to His, that loosening the grip of, from what I want to what He wants, that, that relinquishment. Man, it's so hard to relinquish, especially when you're convinced you're right. And Pharaoh's convinced he knows what he's doing. He's king of the land. Everybody's bowing down to him. It's a really dangerous place to get, by the way, in leadership when, when no one's pushing back any, like, negative critique. Toward, like, if you're in a place in leadership, those of you who lead and manage lots of organizations, are big, make sure you've got people in your life who can help with the blind spots because Pharaoh, nobody's given Pharaoh any, like, constructive criticism. Constructive criticism in Pharaoh's world equaled execution on the spot. So Pharaoh's convinced he's right. Do you see how hard it is for him to relinquish his will? When everybody's bowing down to him and giving him whatever he wants and he does whatever he wants. When you're in a place where you just kind of do whatever you want, however you want, with no pushback, do you see how dangerous that is? And so God's stepping in and say, Pharaoh, it's going to take several rounds here. And it's going to take... You're going to have to loosen the grip and take it back, loosen the grip and take it back. And the role of the plagues is this relinquish, loosen it, let it go this way. And I put in your notes, you know, one of the ways that I've seen in my own life or working with other people, like there's different kinds of plagues God brings. I, I put in my notes like relational plagues. Like people close to you say they don't know who you are anymore. That's kind of relational plagues. Financial plagues, the creditors keep calling and the bank says they can't loan you any money anymore. Health plagues, the doctor informs you your physical health, your body can't take it anymore. Your spiritual plagues, you, as you think about God and faith and salvation and grace, you're not sure what you believe anymore. So whether it's relational plagues, financial plagues, health plagues, spiritual plagues, all kinds of different plagues, and the work God is doing in that space, the overarching purpose is to turn our hearts towards Him, to get us to be in step with Him, release the grip, surrender the control, and so I put in your notes and in my notes, when I find myself in the middle of a plague, when you find yourself in the middle of a plague, I think these are three questions we can ask. Say, Lord, what are you calling me to leave behind so I can embrace what's next? I think that's an important question when you, maybe this morning finds you in the middle of some version or 
a multiplicity of plagues. Maybe you feel like you're in round two, three, or four, or maybe you feel like you're in round seven, eight, or nine, or so. Well, you feel like you're in the middle of all this. Say, Lord, what, what do you call me to leave behind so I can embrace what's next? That'd be a good question. God, what are you trying to get me to see? Are you trying to open my eyes to see? And he's certainly trying to get Pharaoh to see. Pharaoh, you're not the capital A, capital A, capital I, capital A, capital M. That's what he's trying to get Pharaoh to see. Pharaoh, you're the little I, little A, little M. You know, that's actually a good posture for a follower of Jesus. I am not. Small I, small A, small M, not. I, think, I was thinking, about, like, if we had name tags in the church, I'd be really good under name tags, I think. Hey, I'm not. Good to meet you. I'm not either. Nice. How was your week, not? I am not. But, but, I know the great I am. That's a Jesus follower. I am not, but, but I know the capital I, capital A, capital M. He's trying to get Pharaoh to that place. What are you trying to get me to see, Lord? And then the last thing I wrote, where, where do I hear the voice of the Spirit saying, surrender this to me? Where's that contact point for you these days? Because church, when you get out on the redemptive edge, when you find that edge between the darkness and light, between Pharaoh and his gods and goddesses and the kingdom of God, between Yahweh, when you get right there on that edge and you find that point of darkness and you start pushing it back with the light of Christ's hope, believe you me, there's going to be a lot of relinquishment work done over and over and over. And it's going to require this, I think, this kind of formation on the inside to keep us on the edge, make sure that we're representing what Jesus wants to represent on the redemptive edge. Because unfortunately, the history of the church and the history of Christianity and even the history of this past year, Christians got out on the redemptive edge but didn't represent Jesus very well there. It's easy. You can get out there in that contact point of darkness and light and you represent the fallen human condition more than you represent the redemptive Christ. And that can happen. That's why formation and mission, they have to be together. That's why in order for Migros Aid to flourish, it's not just Joel and his team and all the volunteers actually physically doing all that work. It's who they are while they're doing it. That, they, that the people from all these countries and nations that God has brought here, that they come in contact with this body of Christ and they see the life of Christ pulsating in the acts of service on the redemptive edge. Are you with me? Does that make sense? And that's for most fair. Hey, not just God extracting them out of Egypt, but doing it in a way that who they're becoming when they get out, when they get to the promised land, they're going to represent him on that redemptive edge the way God wants it represented. Well, they get to the 10th round. It took a 10-rounder. Pharaoh went nine times. I changed my mind. I want him back. 10th time, though, and this is what's called the Passover. So this is why in Jewish communities and in Christian communities, you hear this term Passover and lamb. You say, what's it all rooted in? Here is what it's all rooted in, Exodus chapter 12. Turn over to chapter 12, and here's the 10th round of the battle that gets him to finally loosen the grip and let the people go. Verse 12 of chapter 12, on that same night, this is what God says He's going to do. He's going to send the angel of death to pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I'll bring judgment on all the gods, notice, of Egypt. There it is. I am the Lord. But this isn't a Moses Pharaoh. This is a Yahweh versus gods and goddesses of Egypt. Verse 13, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So go over to verse 21 now. So Moses summons all the elders of Israel, and here's what he says. So here's the plan. Go at once 
select the animals for your families and slaughter, circle this in your Bibles, the Passover lamb. So you got to get a lamb, slaughter it, get the blood. Take a bunch of hyssop, which are like plant branches, dip it in the blood in the basin, put the blood, here's the key, on the top of both sides of the door frame. Not one of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. Now, this is a whole nother level for lockdown, church, okay? We all tired of quarantine, you're tired of restriction, all that. This is a whole new level. I guarantee no one's doing takeout that night. No way. God said, you stay in. Put the blood over the door and you stay in. Because, okay, stay until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on top of the sides of the doorframe and he will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and strike you down. And so, this is what happens. This is the scene. This is the, so that night... All the Egyptians, they get the blood, they put it over the Passover lamb, or all the, all the Israelites do that, and all the Egyptians, they, they don't have those instructions, they're just being normal families or whatever, and they wake up the next morning and all their firstborn children are dead. And the firstborn is significant because it's all the hopes and dreams are wrapped up in the firstborn, double portion of the estate, like firstborn's a big deal all through here. So God picks the firstborn, he's going to strike at the core of Pharaoh on this one, and the core of the Egyptian nation, and all of these children and all the firstborn of the livestock. They're all dead the next morning. And so verse 31, here's the scene. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. So he said, after he sees what's happening here, he says, up, leave, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go, worship the Lord as you've requested. Take your flocks and herds, and as you said, and go. And how about this? And also bless me. What's that tell you right there? That tells you somewhere in that whole scene, he sees Yahweh's upper hand to all those other gods and goddesses. Do you see? Bless me, meaning, I don't know fully what's going on with you over there, but I want a part of that because something else is happening here. So, church, this is where, for the Jewish people, they commemorate the festival of Passover, the feast of Passover. It's commemorated on the events of Exodus 12. It's where they, they, they have feasts, they have festivals, they have celebrations, they have gatherings where they have a meal and they tell the story and they read the story and they talk about the enslavement to Egypt and they talk about the exit, they talk about the plagues, they talk about the way God loosened Pharaoh's iron grip over them and they talk about this primary one, the plague of the firstborn through the blood of the Passover lamb. So do you see now, church, why fast-forwarding to the life of Jesus in the New Testament, do you see why the Father would be instructing Jesus, though the people had their own agenda, they had their own time when they wanted Jesus to go public and do the Messiah thing and put the Romans down and put the Jews back in power, like step forward, flex your muscle, Jesus. And Jesus would often, it's so frustrating, you read the Gospels, you'd look at it and go, it's go time. And he'd withdraw from the crowd and tell them, hey, keep it on the DL. You're like, DL? Do you hear what the Romans are doing across town? No. Here was the idea. The Father always, it's the difference between Kronos, our time, Kairos, God's time. God appointed time was the Son of God, Jesus, would go to the cross on Passover. You see that? So John the Baptist says in John chapter 1, he turns, everybody's coming to John the Baptist and they think he's some Messiah. He's like, yeah, 
points, look, the Lamb of God to Jesus. Look, the Lamb of God, finish the sentence, who takes away the sin of the world. Do you see this, church? It all ties to Jesus. Exodus 12 is all a foreshadowing of what we see in the New Testament. And I put this in your notes, tying it all to Jesus. Mark 14, 12, listen to this. In light of this backdrop this morning, read this couple of sentences in the New Testament. Mark 14, 12, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What's that feast about? Because in the middle of the night, Pharaoh said, go. The people didn't have time for the bread to leaven to rise. So they tell a story, and they have the Feast of Unleavened Bread to remember that suddenly God said, get out of here. Pharaoh said, loosen the grip. Middle of the night. See, that Feast of Unleavened Bread has that history. It was customary to sacrifice what? The Passover lamb and Jesus' disciples ask him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So you see the Passover meal here in Exodus 12 and following through the Old Testament becomes the Last Supper in Jesus. The night to be remembered becomes Monday, Thursday in Jesus. The death of the firstborn, the plague of the firstborn, becomes the death of the firstborn of the Father who's full of grace and truth in Jesus. The blood of the Passover lamb that was sprinkled over the door flames, do you see this now? It's the blood of Christ as our Passover lamb sprinkled over our hearts, cleansing over our lives that, as Isaiah said, takes us as from red as scarlet to white as snow. Do you see that? And just as God says, I'm going to, hey, Israelites, I'm going to get you out of this enslavement to Egypt. I'm going to exit you out of your enslavement to Egypt. So here you go. Church of Jesus, the way out of our own personal Egypts is on the back of this Passover lamb. He's our only shot. The way you get from here to there is by his blood and his sacrifice. It's the only way. And so all through Exodus, as we go through here, it's important that we kind of look at the life of Moses and, and get understanding of what he's dealing with, living on the redemptive edge. And then we want to take the, the life of Moses, the principles there, and we want to tie the principles to a person, and the person is Jesus. Because it's all foreshadowing him to come. God's a, it's his story. God's writing a story. It's in salvation history. We're only on this section of the Bible. Look, we're starting here. We've got a long way to go, gang. Look, all this. And it's all foreshadowing what's to come. And I love what this Old Testament scholar, he's an Irish Old Testament scholar, Alec Moyer said. I put this in your notes because I thought it was so powerful. Such a good summary here. Follow this with me. If you ask an Israelite, who are you? He might reply, listen to this. I was in a foreign land under the sentence of death and in bondage, but I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. And our mediator led us out, and we crossed over. Now we're on our way to the promised land, though we're not there yet. But he has given us his law to make us a community. And he has given us a tabernacle because we must live by grace and forgiveness. And he is present in our midst, and he will stay with us until we arrive home. Wow. That's us, church. In Jesus' name. So worship team, why don't you come on up? We're going to transition. This kind of sets us up for our communion table. So my friend Andy, halftime of the uh, football game. Shut the TV off, opens up this, it was his book, was, his Bible's a lot thicker than mine. It's one of them study Bible things, I think, big, thick. Opens it up and starts reading me these verses about sin and sinner and applying them to me. And I was a teenage boy. You know what my response was? Not me. I said, Andy, that's not me. 
I mean, I, I feel like I'm, I'm a pretty good kid. Isn't that good enough for God? I mean, I don't, I don't bat a thousand, but, you know, for the most part, try to be a good kid and toe the line and do what mom and dad want, handle schoolwork and, you know, is that good enough? Well, church, we never turned the football game back on because the dialogue was filled with this, for me, an understanding for the first time that this issue of sin and sinner wasn't just an Eric Simpson thing. It was kind of a human condition thing. That I began to understand that just by the nature of being a human, being born in what the Bible calls fallenness, I've got an issue that's got to get sorted out with God. I'm, in the language of our storyline Exodus, we're all kind of born into our own personal Egypt, our own land of sin. We're enslaved. We're born in Egypt, metaphorically. You with me? And the only way to the promise, the only way from where we're born into to where God has destined us to be is on the back of the Passover lamb. And so the conversation in that little apartment turned to, hey, Eric, if you'll bring your sin to Jesus, he'll bring his healing grace to you. That's your only shot. Now, I'm pretty hard-headed, pretty stubborn. Didn't take that in the first 5, 10, 15, to about 45 minutes or so of just kind of, I need to sort that out, come to grips with it, think it through. And we ended on our knees in this little sofa in this apartment. And I said, Jesus, save me. Forgive me. I had no idea at the start of this football game what even the word sin or sinner meant. Meant. Uh, but it's clear to me now it's quite costly. It uh, costs you the blood of your son. So save me. A few years later, I had, had some folks come up to me and say, Eric, you know that halftime conversation you had with Andy? I said, yeah. I said, did you know that Andy had mobilized virtually the entire town of Newton, Iowa to pray at halftime? I said, huh? He said, well, you knew everybody watching the football game. So he just said, halftime, put pause, put mute, and pray by name for Eric Simpson to bow his knee. I said to him, I said to that group, I said, what's a total setup? I said, I was, I was completely ambushed. I mean, <laughs> but so grateful, ambushed by grace. And so church, that's the communion table set for you and set for me. Wherever your personal Egypt is, wherever your round of plagues you're going through, the only way from where you are to where God's calling you to be is that broken body and that shed blood on the back of that Passover lamb. It's sufficient. It doesn't matter how long you've been there. It doesn't matter how deep you've been in it. The Israelites, 400 years. It doesn't matter how dark and strong Pharaoh's hold is. This Passover lamb is sufficient. He got the last word. He is the capital I, capital A capital M. 
So in just a moment, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. All the communion elements, if you came in this morning and, and missed them on the tables, they're in the back. We've got some gluten-free options on each of the tables. So in just a moment, I'll pray and give you a little time to take the elements. And if you want to get up and grab those, you can. Obviously, we're trying to do it COVID-friendly way. So you just kind of peel the top layer for the cracker and then the, the juice is inside. And they just represent, right, the cracker, his body, the juice, his blood. You don't have to be a member here, but the scriptures are clear need to be a follower of Jesus. It's a good time. Check your heart and see. Maybe today's your halftime of the football game moment and you just bow your knee and say, Jesus, save me. I know I'm a sinner. I need you. Forgive me. Come into my life. And you can take communion as an act of worship for the first time. You can do that today. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you that there's nothing we're carrying, nothing that we're holding. There's no iron grip we have on something that you don't have the power and strength to loosen. Just say, hey, surrender that to me. Yield that to me. We hold these elements. Uh, we take this bread and this juice and we do so as an act of worship. We remember your sacrifice. You lay down your life. Thank you for freeing us, for literally extracting us darkness of our own personal Egypts. So we take these elements as an act of worship in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.